A few years ago, the Covenant Network of Presbyterians met in Chicago to talk about theology and sexuality. Their meeting was dubbed Sex in the Windy City. <laughs> Amy Miracle, a pastor at a church in Des Moines at the time, quipped in a sermon, I'm a Midwesterner. I'm repressed and proud of it. I had hoped to end my career in ministry without ever mentioning the word sex in a sermon. Well, if I ever had any such hopes, they would be dashed today. So buckle up, because this morning we look at the Song of Songs. Also called the Song of Solomon, because the very first verse is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. It is as lush and erotic a love poem as you will find in literature. It's actually multiple poems, between a dozen and 30 or so, depending on where you decide one ends and another begins. Most folks are frankly astonished if they ever get around to reading the Song of Songs all the way through. And it gets dicier when they learn that in all its eight chapters, this book doesn't mention God once. It's not alone in that. The book of Esther doesn't mention God either. But at least Esther mentions praying and fasting, and at least it's about rescuing God's people from destruction, not sexual love. No wonder a very common reaction to the Song of Songs is, why on earth is this in the Bible? And no wonder that it's troubled commentators and theologians for centuries. Both Jews and Christians have read the poetry as an allegory. In Judaism, it was understood to express the love of God for Israel, and that's how it ended up in the Hebrew Scriptures in the first place. Christians adopted it because it was part of the Old Testament, and then overlaid an allegory that the partners were Christ and his church. There is nothing in the song itself to support that this is an allegory. Modern scholars are almost unanimous in, in viewing the song as a celebration of romantic and sexual love between a man and a woman. So one short answer to why is the Song of Songs in the Bible might be, it was a mistake. <laughs> but that really doesn't do justice to this book or to the power of the Holy Spirit to work in mysterious ways. The question I like the question I will wrestle with today is, why is it a good thing, a holy thing, a gift from God to us that the Song of Songs is in the Bible? It is a good thing because it reminds us that sex is good, a good gift from God. Our bodies are good gifts from God. The Christian church has a dismal history of denying the goodness of the body and of sex in particular. The body-affirming faith that we inherited from Judaism, so evident in the Song of Songs, took a sharp turn in the wrong direction when Christianity spread to the Greco-Roman world. Plato had taught that flesh and spirit were separate, and flesh was bad while spirit was good. Aristotle threw in his two cents by, de by defining some sex as natural and some as unnatural. And then Augustine, motivated by his own past and guilty conscience, developed a theology focused on how rotten sex is, and in particular, how evil lust is, and basically 
blamed everything bad that ever happened on some combination of those two. By the 11th and 12th centuries, this eventually led to requiring celibacy for clergy. And it led to centuries of repression, which is why Western culture is both ashamed of sex and obsessed with it. The Song of Songs is a lovely reminder that our physical bodies are beautiful and beloved, and that loving relationships occur within and not in spite of our bodies. God gave us these bodies. God cherishes these bodies. God gave us these bodies and cherishes these bodies in order that we might love and cherish each other, because God is love and love is of God. When we abide in love, we abide in God, and that includes sexual and romantic love. Sexuality is a gift from God. The fact that Song of Songs made it into Scripture also reminds us that, as with all gifts from God, sexuality is to be enjoyed, and it is a call to faithful discipleship. Theologian Stanley Harawas said that the greatest, corruption, the greatest corruption Christian thinking about sex has suffered in our age is not that we think sex is fun or dirty or pointless, but that we have come to think of sex as private. We have come to think of sex as nobody's business but our own. As the psalmist writes, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. God cares about every aspect of your life, including your sex life. So sex, like everything else we do, is God's business. It is an opportunity for discipleship. And as hard as sex might be to talk about, I'm not so sure that discipleship isn't even harder. So the Song of Songs isn't just an invitation to enjoy sex, It's an invitation to enjoy faithful sex, by which I mean sex that reflects that we are living into our calling to be faithful disciples of Christ. Of course, then we have to figure out what that means. This is a challenge when what we see in the media in 2015 is our culture alternately being described as a rape culture and a hookup culture. Rape culture is a setting in which rape is pervasive and normalized. And if you're not familiar with the term hookup, it's the word used to describe people participating in casual sexual encounters, from kissing to whatever, with no relational commitment or emotional bonding, just recreation, no boundaries or expectations. Kids are sometimes led to believe that everybody does this, and everybody is okay with it, and neither turns out to be the case. In a blog post entitled, How the Hookup Culture Makes Me Feel Less Human, a college student writes, aren't we Gen Yers supposed to be allowed to sleep with someone without feeling guilty afterward, without those feelings of blackness and shame? Maybe we're just having sex in hopes that it will lead to love. Maybe we're all wrong. There are emotions associated when rejection follows sex, regardless of whether or not you are initially interested in the person, 
Sometimes I feel dirty and weird, like I gave something up that I shouldn't have, like I wasn't, as my mother says, valuing my body. I'm constantly struggling with the notion that women are sexually free while simultaneously battling my own demons and self-doubt. In other words, this student feels confusion, but also shame. She's ashamed about the sexual encounter she's having, and she's ashamed she's uncomfortable with the whole hookup ethos. It's no win, and it's painful. Song of Psalms helps us here because it helps us see this whole dilemma through the lens of faithfulness. To begin with, the Song of Songs so very clearly and lushly describes a situation in which the two people love each other and offer fidelity to each other. We don't know if they're married or getting married. At one place, the man refers to the woman as his bride. But we do know they're emotionally connected, involved, and sexually exclusive. The metaphors they use to enjoy each other's bodies are from another place in time and, frankly, giggle-worthy. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, being one of my personal favorites. Or your hair is like a flock of goats, also pretty hard to resist. But what is timeless here is that this couple does not disconnect love and sex. The opposite of a hookup is the passionate declaration, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. The poems also describe a relationship in which there is surprising equality and mutuality. Even though the book has been called the Song of Solomon, The first voice we hear in the first chapter is a woman's, and we hear her in 75% of the poems. She is an active and eager participant in this relationship, and this stands in contrast to our culture's shaming of women who are sexually active, using derogatory terms never, ever applied to sexually active men. Not just good sex, faithful sex. In response to the recent trial involving a sexual assault at a prep school in New Hampshire, Christian ethicist Rebecca Todd Peters wrote an article entitled, I Really Hope My Daughter Has Good Sex. It's an important article, and I recommend that the parents in the room, parents of boys and girls, read the whole thing. What Peters means by good sex is faithful sex. She writes, good sex requires trust, active consent, mutual respect, an equality of power in the relationship, maturity, and readiness. In the context of sex ed for youth and young people, we should really stress the aspects of maturity and readiness. As a Christian ethicist, I also believe that good sex requires a commitment between the two partners in the context of a long-term relationship. Good sex is part of building healthy relationships. She continues, Sex that hurts us, that is not voluntary, that makes us feel bad about ourselves, 
that is the result of obligation or fear or nervousness or timidity is not good sex. Good sex should make us feel better, not worse. If you take nothing else from today's sermon away, let it be that good sex, faithful sex, should make us feel better, not worse. It should make everyone, us and our partners, feel better, not worse. Again and again, Jesus showed us that every body, every single body, is worthy of the tenderest care. That is what God wants for us. If evangelical Christians have focused too narrowly on abstinence as the pat answer, we mainline progressive Christians, to a great extent, have turned sex education over to the secular world. Young people in Marin County are highly educated about the mechanics of sex and how to avoid sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancy. What they need most is a different sort of education, one that helps them reconnect their spiritual selves with their sexual selves, one that equates good sex and faithful sex, one that lifts up discipleship as the most real and pressing question when it comes to sex. William Willimon tells a story about speaking with a a Duke University student. The student was a Presbyterian, by the way. The student had spent a semester working for Habitat for Humanity in Americus, Georgia, volunteering to build homes for the poor. He had lunch with her when she returned to Duke. Americus, Georgia is really small, she said. There's nothing to do there at night except go to a gospel sing at some little church. The college students who are there with Habitat do a lot of sitting on the porch in the evenings. We just have a beer and sit and talk. Millard Fuller doesn't mind if you have a beer, Willimon asked. Millard Fuller is the former Presbyterian minister who founded Habitat for Humanity. Well, I guess he sort of looks the other way, she said. But you can't sleep with each other. Really? Is that because Millard Fuller is a Presbyterian, Willimon asked? Doesn't want people to have a good time? No, I don't think so, the student said. Millard says there are just too many poor people with inadequate housing for us to be wasting time. (laughs) Willimon concludes, I love that. That's putting sex in its place. Like money, power, and knowledge, the goodness of sex is, for us, relative to our attempt to be faithful disciples to Jesus. It makes all the difference in the world how and for whom we do it. Why is the Song of Songs in the Bible? Maybe it ended up there by mistake, by human mistake. But I am convinced that it is here because God knows we need it. We need it to remind us of the amazing gift of sexuality and to remind us to treasure that gift, to use it faithfully, to use it to show and increase God's love. 
May it be so for you and for me. Amen.